A Bitcoin full node is a certainty machine. When a user runs a full node, they are granted a level of certainty about a monetary network that no human had prior to Bitcoin's existence. Every other monetary technology is riddled with uncertainties. Bitcoin fixes this. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this is Bitcoin Audible. And we're going to be reading some stuff about Bitcoin. So I thought I was actually going to do the grand unified theory of the FTX disaster today. And I did actually get through 20 minutes of the audio. Uh, this is from the uh, Rounding the Earth substack. And it's good but it's also really long and it's a lot to dig into. And I'll have a couple of caveats basically that I kind of want to, I want to build up myself for the guy's take. So it's going to take me a lot longer than I thought. And uh, I came across, uh, or well, actually Saifedean shared it out again today. Um, and then I got a lot of different messages about Goldstein's, about Michael Goldstein's new piece in the Bitcoin Times, which by the way, if you are not a reader of the Bitcoin Times, uh, we have done so much of their publication in audio on this show. In fact, I think I think I didn't actually get all the way through the second one, but I did do every piece in the first one. But uh, there is just straight gold in that, and I, I highly recommend it. Obviously, I have the link in the show notes to the article. Um, but uh, this is another good one. We haven't read something. I mean, I don't even think Goldstein has written anything in years. Um, and uh, it's good to uh, have him back in the saddle. Uh, also, Goldstein, if you aren't aware, wrote the legendary piece, Everyone is a Scammer. So I'll have the link to that one in the show notes. Uh, if you haven't heard and or read it yet, it's a must. But his new piece that we're going to read today is awesome. And uh, yeah, so we're just going to go ahead and get right into it, actually. No more introduction necessary. I do want to thank our amazing sponsors really quick, CoinKite and the Cold Card Mark IV Hardware Wallet. If you don't have a cold card yet or a hardware wallet in general and you're not holding your own keys and you're still not convinced, then listen to the rest of this piece. You might be convinced. Then you're going to want to stack all the time with Swan Bitcoin and send it to your cold card. And the beauty of Swan Bitcoin is that you can automatically stack automatically send it to your keys along with the incredible resource as far as a knowledge and ongoing analysis and you know breakdown of the space uh, at swanbitcoin.com link in the show notes and then lastly you want your debit card your debit card that gets you stats back on everything in life with fold this is literally the cheat code for fiat check them out link in the show notes with that let's get into today's article, and it's titled Toward a Node World Order by Michael Goldstein How Bitcoin Obsoletes Inflation and Promotes Human Flourishing 
Perpetual vigilance on the part of the citizens can achieve what a thousand laws and dozens of alphabetical bureaus with hordes of employees never have and never will. The preservation of a sound currency. Ludwig von Mises, The Theory of Money and Credit Introduction The primordial state of man is poverty. Nature is unforgiving in its scarcity of available means. On a fixed amount of land with a fixed amount of technology, there is a physical limit to the output of labor. As Hans Hermann Hoppe observes, Only one way exists for such a stationary society to further increase real income per head or to grow in size without a loss in per capita income. Through technological innovation, i.e. by the employment of better, more efficient tools made possible through savings brought about by the abstention from leisure or other immediate consumption. He concludes that only through the process of lowering time preference so as to accumulate an increasing amount of capital goods and technology was it possible to break out of the Malthusian trap set by the limit of resources immediately available by kickstarting the Industrial Revolution. Without a certain amount of capital and production, standards of living we take for granted are not physically possible. During the Industrial Revolution, many children had to find work in dangerous factories in order to help earn income for the family. The way out was through what George Reisman called the productivity theory of wages. An increase in productivity through capital accumulation means each monetary unit earned can fetch more consumer goods in the marketplace. Through this process, families could earn enough resources with fewer wage earners, children could leave the factories, and more leisure could be afforded generally. However, tools are merely tools, and a public ideology can prevent their most productive use. Mark Thornton points out that the abhorrent use of slave labor, while rendered increasingly unprofitable by industrial progress in the process described above, remained in practice until its violent and bloody abolition because of aggressive state intervention in the form of mandated slave patrols and prohibition of private manumission of slaves. Progress, then, appears to require three things— capital accumulation, technological advancement, and a public ideology to support it. More tools must be produced, better tools must be invented, and people must know how and want to use their tools. The Malthusian trap has been broken, but it is unclear whether or not humanity has the potential to even richer cooperation. Given the ubiquity of money in an economy, as the great facilitator of the division of labor that allows any economic development to occur, it is a technology ripe for innovation. The Origins of Money In a world of perfect certainty, there is no need for money. Ludwig von Mises describes the hypothetical state of what he calls the, quote, evenly rotating economy in human action, as having no change and thus no uncertainty. In this equilibrium, there is no action because all knowledge of when and how to allocate and exchange resources is already known. However, in the real world, we don't know the future. 
we face uncertainty and have scarce means to deal with it. Circumstances and preferences can change at any moment, both for ourselves and others. Because of this, we have to prepare. We cannot rely on direct exchange to get the resources we want because of what is called the double coincidence of wants problem. Others may not have what we want, or they may not want what we have, and vice versa. To deal with this uncertainty, we begin to acquire goods, not for their own sake, but because we think they are more likely to be desired by those with whom we wish to trade. These goods may be classified as, quote, media of exchange. Not every good is as useful as such. If the good is not durable, the actor cannot be certain that it will still be useful by the time he wants to trade it in the future. If it is not portable, it might not be available at the place where he wants to trade in the future. If it's not divisible, it might not be available in the amount he wants to trade in the future. An actor would want to choose a good that best handles these uncertainties and remains saleable over the most possible times, spaces, and scales. As Mises points out in The Theory of Money and Credit, quote, an inevitable tendency for the less marketable of a series of goods used as media of exchange to be one by one rejected until at last only a single commodity remained, which was universally employed as a medium of exchange. In a word, money. Historically, this market competition for the most saleable good converged on gold because of its desirable physical properties, a low supply growth rate, durability, malleability, etc. However, while these properties were beneficial at the time, they have clearly not been enough in the long run. The State and Its Motivation Productive enterprises are constrained by peaceful economic means because they are beholden to private property, at the whims of consumer demand, and have no recourse to competition except to improve themselves by lowering production costs and increasing quality. The state, on the other hand, has no such constraints. As the territorial monopoly of ultimate decision-making, it operates through coercive means. Individuals and firms are forced to pay for its existence through taxation and other forms of expropriation. An a priori demonstration that the state does not provide services actually demanded by peaceful market operations. Regulatory and tax expropriation does not only provide the state with an income, but also provides it with a mechanism to restrict competition. However, as Hans Hermann Hoppe explains, violence alone cannot account for the continued success of a state, and the state does face a different sort of constraint that of public opinion. For a state to operate as it does, quote, a firm must have public support in addition to coercive force. A majority of the population must accept its operations as legitimate. This acceptance can range from active enthusiasm to passive resignation. But acceptance it must be in the sense that a majority must have given up the idea of actively or passively resisting any attempt to enforce non-productive and non-contractual property acquisitions. Instead of displaying outrage over such actions, of showing contempt for everyone who engages in them, and of doing nothing to help make them successful, not to mention actively trying to obstruct them, a majority must actively or passively support them. 
state supportive public opinion must counterbalance the resistance of victimized property owners such that active resistance appears futile. And the goal of the state then, and of every state employee who wants to contribute towards securing and improving his own position within the state, is and must be that of maximizing exploitatively acquired wealth and income by producing favorable public opinion and creating legitimacy. Because of this, the state has a natural desire to resist competition that can threaten a state's legitimacy as well as redistribution of, quote, some of its coercively appropriated wealth to people outside the state apparatus and thereby attempting to corrupt them into assuming state-supportive roles. The state first targets monopolization of law and security as a means to perform and enforce expropriation, despite its aggression against natural property rights. Another key target is education so as to inculcate ideological support for the state and its actions among the citizenry. Modern state power rests on monopolization of a particular industry, money and banking. Quote, The monopolization of money and banking is the ultimate pillar on which the modern state rests. In fact, it has probably become the most cherished instrument for increasing state income. For nowhere else can the state make the connection between redistribution, expenditure, and exploitation return more directly, quickly, and securely than by monopolizing money and banking. If a state can establish a fully monopolized fiat currency, it can counterfeit at will. Through monetary inflation in the form of counterfeit, producing more currency units without an additional supply of the underlying commodity, they can indirectly redistribute wealth from the economy to themselves at low cost and without fear of bankruptcy. However, Hoppe points out that there are barriers to the process of monopolizing money. First, commodity money is produced by the market rather than state fiat. Second, while inflation is not as conspicuous as taxation, it will still be felt and noticed, especially by banks. Therefore, the state is constrained by its commodity money origins and public ideology. Quote, and so it is also impossible for the state to get away with institutionalized counterfeiting unless it can be combined with redistributive measures which are capable of bringing about another favorable change in public opinion. With gold as the historical free market choice for money, the state sought to exploit its vulnerabilities particularly in its lack of saleability due to its physical qualities being unable to alleviate economic uncertainty. Gold didn't fix this. Hoppe begins to trace the process of monopolization. Quote, In a first step, the minting of gold must be monopolized by the state, this serves the purpose of psychological de-internationalizing gold by shifting the emphasis from gold as denominated in universal terms of weight to gold as denominated in terms of fiat labels. And it removes a first important obstacle toward counterfeiting because it gives the state the very institutional means of enriching itself through a systematic process of currency debasement. While gold has many attractive properties for money, Verifying the gold received in trade is very costly. 
Given how valuable a good must necessarily be if it is a generally accepted medium of exchange, it is not only the state that wishes to counterfeit currency. All payments received should be suspect. While some basic tests can be done by a normal individual, none are automatic. At worst, and especially for large payments, very costly chemical analysis must be done to know that you truly have the gold you believe you received, requiring skilled professionals and expensive equipment. The highest standard method is the fire assay or cupellation, which requires melting the gold down to weigh and recast. This means both the buyer and seller cannot be certain that any exchange is settled. The seller of a good cannot be certain they are receiving the full or any sum of gold as payment, and the buyer cannot know they aren't using counterfeit money after having been defrauded in a previous transaction. In the past, this uncertainty was minimized by a mint who could produce standardized gold coins of a certain quality and with a recognizable and familiar design that can even help a person know if it had been tampered with such as ridges on the outside that would be smoothed if someone tried shaving the coin. These mints earned a seniorage by setting the price of the coins higher than the true metal composition. At the same time, this trust in the mint could similarly be abused. Mints could take coins out of circulation, decrease the actual gold and silver composition, and then reintroduce the coins with the same price, thereby earning more seniorage from the debasement of the same coins. They could then also issue more coins than the actual quantity of metal should allow. Centralized mints alleviate uncertainty about the quality of the good, but only by introducing a highly trusted centralized system, which introduces uncertainty about the true quantity of metal in the coins being held and circulated, and by extension about the real money supply of the whole economy. Because gold is decentralized as a commodity, there is no ability to audit the economy as a whole. Quote, Second, the use of money substitutes instead of actual gold must be systematically encouraged, and such a tendency backed up by the enactment of legal tender laws. The counterfeiting process thereby becomes much less costly. Instead of having to remint gold, only paper tickets must be printed. Expensive storage and transportation of a good reduces its saleability due to the uncertainty of whether a good will be secure until it is needed and whether it will be deliverable at the time of exchange. Because of gold's weight, both storage and transportation grow in cost relative to the value of gold. Long-term storage is best provided by third parties who can afford the best vault technology to prevent theft. Physical transportation requires large vehicles and manpower. As theft also occurs during transportation, defensive measures must also be accounted for to deal with the risk of highway robbers, pirates, and other criminals. Transportation also takes time. Finally, gold's physicality also limits its saleability in smaller scales. If a gold-based economy becomes too wealthy, it would be difficult to settle physical atoms of gold. Banks solved this by issuing money substitutes in the form of paper certificates. Once again, only through trusted third parties could gold become more saleable. Banks could store gold safely, and people could transfer paper notes much faster, easier, and cheaper, no matter the value. However, 
this still leaves uncertainty about the validity of the paper notes as such, and whether these notes actually represent gold in a vault at all. Inflation becomes much easier and accessible to any supposed steward of gold. Banks can be audited, but not independently, so customers are always at the whim of trusting that their gold is being handled correctly if they choose to use a bank, which is practically necessary if they wish to engage in a certain level of commerce. Then, even with a solvent bank, access to gold remains dependent on a third party. Once banks have adopted money substitutes for gold, states can begin to adopt legal tender laws to increase their capacity for counterfeiting. The next step is to cartelize the banking industry through the establishment of a central bank. Once this is done, quote, the state must require all banks to deposit their gold at the central bank and conduct their business exclusively with money substitutes instead of gold. This way, gold disappears from the market as an actually used medium of exchange and instead, everyday transactions become increasingly characterized by the use of central bank notes. At this point, a gold standard is at best in name only. The people have a money that is more saleable on many dimensions in space and scale. Theoretically, these solutions could be done by private entities that respect the rights of their clients. However, the centralizing tendencies allow the state to exploit this for their own inflationary and counterfeiting gain. Banks are tempted by state control because of their own benefits from the counterfeiting regime. Now both the state and the banks become first recipients of newly printed money. Known as the Cantillon effect, these first recipients get to spend the money before the economy can adjust prices to reflect the change in the money supply. Public ideology in support of this fiat currency system then comes from two angles. First, the fact that the underlying technology is, in many ways, an improvement in creating a more saleable money, despite the fact that its otherwise free market potential is now co-opted and monopolized by the state. Second, the state can use this as an advantage by crediting themselves as the source of the economic benefits we see from its effects, while papering over the costs of counterfeiting on the economy. Given banks are naturally one of the most powerful institutions in an economy due to their vital role in facilitating economic activity, they provide yet more legitimacy and resources to the establishment of a public ideology that defends the state's unjust role in the monetary order that allows it to continue. Thus, it is not surprising that few educated people can be expected to have even heard the name Ludwig von Mises during their studies. The Fiat World Order. Let's pause right here and talk about stacking with Swan Bitcoin. You know, there's when, when you when you are so certain about something, like you're going to stack Bitcoin, there's no reason to take time to do it. You you should do it automatically. You should set it up and automate the things in your life that are important and that are no-brainers that you're obviously going to do. Stack Bitcoin every day, every week, every month, and have it automatically sent to your keys. Seriously, there is nothing out of all the things that I do in Bitcoin. I use Lightning wallets and I pay for stuff and I get gift cards and I get sats back on fold. Like all the things that I do, there is one staple. There is one solid always there thing. 
And it's that Swan is buying every single week and sending it to my cold storage. My stack is always going up. And if you're looking for a ways to plug in your business, you know, to set up a trust, to get your IRA exposed to Bitcoin, to get a walkthrough, you, you know, you're a high net worth investor and you really want the concierge service, you want to know the ins and outs, you want to get the analysis, you want to make an investment in Bitcoin and you want to know what you're doing and you want to work with a team who knows. Swan Private is their concierge service that gets you dedicated support for any issues or questions that you have. Check them out at swanbitcoin.com guy. Now let's jump back in. The Fiat World Order Much has been written about what happened in and since 1971. On this year, the American people and anyone dependent on the Federal Reserve globally was subjected to a full fiat monetary experiment. The reader is encouraged to read Banking, Nation-States, and International Politics by Hans-Hermann Hoppe for a fuller study of the construction of this fiat world order. In particular, the fiat world order encourages states to expand their power not only through military conquest, but also by engaging in monetary imperialism. Quote, It is in a state's natural interest to expand its territory militarily, and hence one should expect a tendency toward a relative concentration of states. It is also in a state's interest to engage in monetary imperialism i.e. to extend its counterfeiting power over larger territories. Thus, a tendency toward a one-world paper currency should be expected. Both interests and tendencies complement each other. On the one hand, any step in the direction of an international counterfeiting cartel is bound to fail if it is not complemented by the establishment of military dominance and hierarchy. External and internal economic pressures would tend to burst the cartel. With military superiority, however, an inflation cartel becomes possible. On the other hand, once military dominance has made such a cartel possible, the dominant state can actually expand its exploitative power over other territories without further war and conquest. In fact, the international cartelization of counterfeiting allows the dominant state to pursue through more sophisticated, i.e. less visible means, what war and conquest alone might not be able to achieve. On a more individual scale, fiat bank accounts are routinely shut down and frozen based purely on political whim. Payments to some merchants in some countries are sometimes not permitted, even if the transaction itself is legal. Access to one's own money is simply not a given. Despite all of this, Given the technological capacity available in the economy, the market still chose gold. But this same choice left the economy susceptible to counterfeiting. The same third parties that were needed to best make gold work as a money also made possible the fiat world order. Without significant technological advancement, no sound replacement could be possible, let alone win over public support. Bitcoin fixes this. Doing your own verifying and indexing is the only way to be sure your index data is secure. Satoshi Nakamoto By 2009, the economy was well into the digital revolution. 
a number of key technologies had been adopted and widely dispersed, including hash trees, public key cryptography, peer-to-peer networking, and SHA-256. A brilliant pseudonymous programmer named Satoshi Nakamoto brought these technologies together to make Bitcoin. Bitcoin solves what is called the double spending problem without a central authority. Any other existing digital cash system, including the present-day fiat currencies and payment infrastructure relying on them, as well as other digital currencies, require a central authority to maintain and dictate the true history of a monetary ledger to make sure that the same units of money are not spent twice. Bitcoin instead decentralizes the bookkeeping and uses a proof-of-work system to maintain consensus between independent bookkeepers about the true history of the ledger. A Bitcoin full node is an independent bookkeeper. It connects to the Bitcoin network, downloads the entire ledger history, and validates every block and transaction received against its adopted rules of Bitcoin. Each full node independently operates according to its own instantiation of software and the rules therein. Transaction inputs must be cryptographically signed by the correct private key or keys. Those inputs must be traceable back to valid transaction outputs. The sum value of the inputs must be greater than or equal to that of the outputs. Additionally, blocks must have valid transactions whose inputs have not already been spent. They must include a pointer back to a previous valid block. They must have an associated proof-of-work nonce that allows a partial hash collision of a certain computational difficulty. They must include only a single Coinbase transaction, which does not have an input, but must have an output no greater than the current block subsidy plus transaction fees. There are many more rules that are checked automatically each and every time a transaction or block reaches a Bitcoin node. Together, the full node instantiates an automated bookkeeper that represents the will of the user, regardless of anyone else in the universe, based on a particular configuration of network parameters of their choosing. The Bitcoin network was architected in such a way that a full node can operate in a bunker cut off from the rest of the world save for a single internet connection. A full node can judge for itself any data it receives that claims to be a valid block or transaction. Proof of work allows the full node to properly order the data. It only takes a single block with a more difficult proof of work for the full node to know exactly how to reorganize its copy of the blockchain to get back into consensus. An eclipse attack, where a full node is only connected to adversarial nodes, can only sustain itself until that node manages to receive a single 80-byte block header payload that tells a different story. Once the full node receives a block and transactions and validates the data, it knows the state of the Bitcoin network, and it knows it with certainty. A Bitcoin full node is a certainty machine. When a user runs a full node, they are granted a level of certainty about a monetary network that no human had prior to Bitcoin's existence. 
every other monetary technology is riddled with uncertainties. Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin's core engineering purpose is to solve two problems, double spending and issuance. The former is solved through proof-of-work timestamping. The latter is solved with the difficulty adjustment and Coinbase transaction requirements. As we will see, solving these two problems and solving them as Bitcoin did plugged the security holes that created uncertainties in previous monetary technologies that have been exploited for monopolistic political ends. The first step towards state control of money was to monopolize minting so as to introduce a trusted model for verification of coins. Bitcoin fixed this by introducing a cryptographically secure ledger where validity of a unit is checked automatically and instantly. Running a node allows a user to ensure the supply and quality of all units is mathematically sound. The supply is managed by strict subsidy rules for the Coinbase transaction and proof-of-work difficulty requirements, and the schedule by the difficulty adjustment. Receivers of newly issued Bitcoin units can only earn a profit insofar as they can continue to find cost-effective sources of energy and hardware subject to strong competitive forces, not simply by having been granted a legal monopoly to produce coins for a higher price than their melt value. Bitcoin fixes seniorage. The second step was to encourage the use of money substitutes rather than the commodity currency itself. This is not inherently malevolent because money substitutes allow for transactions to occur that would be prohibitively expensive due to storage and transportation costs and a lack of divisibility. However, it introduces necessary counterparty risk in the bank that holds the currency, requiring users to trust them to have the commodity available for redemption. Bitcoin, on the other hand, has storage and transportation costs that are orders of magnitude cheaper than gold. Storage of Bitcoin only fundamentally requires the ability to store a 256-bit private key. The cost of storing Bitcoin keys is independent of the value of the Bitcoin, so this is true whether keys hold a few Satoshis or a few thousand Bitcoin. As pure software and information, innovative storage methods can be adopted. While any other incumbent currency requires placing units in a centralized vault or ledger, Bitcoin full nodes recognize the use of multi-signature transactions, allowing for decentralized storage that can even be multi-jurisdictional. Keys can also be stored in a user's own memory, allowing storage to not require a physical location, which can be useful as a hedge against political uncertainty. Bitcoin also does not require a bank vault to be opened in order to deposit more funds. Transportation and settlement is much cheaper than any existing monetary network, including digital fiat, because it can happen between any two keys anywhere in the world at any time for a relatively low fee. Settlement can occur in an hour or instantly using the Lightning Network. While gold suffered from a limit to its divisibility, making it hard to transact with small amounts of gold without money substitutes, Bitcoin can be traded easily at small amounts, especially with the Lightning Network, which allows for sub-Satoshi amounts. Additionally, the cost for dealing with the base Bitcoin currency is solely based on data consumption, 
so the value of Bitcoin can scale infinitely without inherently incurring tremendously higher costs. Running a full node allows a user to be their own bank so that no third-party bank issuing notes is inherently necessary, preventing any issue of counterfeit or double spending to occur unless a person willfully decides to take on counterparty risk. Any introduction of a money substitute, for instance, on an exchange cannot affect the money at a systemic level, but only localized to users of that substitute. Insofar as one might consider a second layer such as Lightning a money substitute, a user can maintain their own full node and each unit is cryptographically linked to real base money, further ensuring that every transaction is valid according to their Bitcoin full node's bookkeeping. With the higher expectations of independently verifiable settlement of the base money and certain money substitutes, users can have much higher expectations and more stringent demands of third-party services and more tools to identify bad behavior to be swiftly corrected in the market process. This also allows the base money to be interfaced in a censorship-resistant manner. In a fully fiat banking system, all payments rely on money substitutes and require the use of counterparties who can block transactions and close accounts. By being their own bank, Bitcoin users can broadcast transactions as they wish, and assuming a large enough fee is paid, a miner can include the transaction in a block with sufficient proof of work, which in turn updates the blockchain on any node sharing the same rule set. Provided you run a node, you can verify with the same certainty as any other transaction that the payment was successful. Because a Bitcoin full node is expected to be able to operate in a bunker, the marketability of Bitcoin tends towards the production of software that is backwards compatible. If the rules were to change in a backwards incompatible way, a user would be required to consult with a trusted source of software to get the correct software and rules anytime they wish to sync with the network. This strengthening tendency towards backwards compatibility creates a certainty for node operators that their understanding of the network, especially their own balances and ability to spend their coins, will remain intact. The same cannot be said for users of fiat monetary systems that wake up to find they are no longer able to access their money, often with no recourse. Finally, running a full node creates more certainty of individual control over the disclosure of identifying information with third parties. The Bitcoin network itself operates pseudonymously, but in the context of trade, information may be shared about ownership of addresses, which can reveal identity, balances, and how Bitcoin is stored. By using a full node, a user reduces what information must be shared in order to interface with the network, and thus can have less uncertainty about certain information being released publicly that can be used against them by bad actors. Bitcoin's novel and groundbreaking architecture, designed to allow independent ownership and verification, completely nullifies the key problems that led to gold centralization. Bitcoin fixed the money, and now it is simply up to individuals to figure this out. Bitcoin nodes and methodological individualism. Okay, so that was a little bit of a mouthful, but fold 
is much easier to say. Is Guy sponsored by a company that makes origami, you ask? No. It is a company that gives you sats back on your fiat purchases. Why is it called Fold? I honestly don't know. I didn't think about it until just this moment. But I like their logo. The little F looks cool. And I've got close to 14.5 million sats back now on my debit card, which I've been using for a year and a few months. And probably only half of that time has I be- have I basically been using it exclusively. But you can literally get a base 1% back on everything that you buy. Or you can spin the wheel of destiny and get all manner of percent back. You can get 1%, you can get 2%, you can get 5,000 sats flat, you can get 100,000 sats. I mean, it goes all the way up to a whole freaking Bitcoin, which I think like 15 people have won a Bitcoin. But you don't fold anything. You don't the little metaverse thing. You don't, you just get free sats. You get a daily sats spin wheel and you, you spin that or you tap it. You don't fold it. And then there's gift cards, but they're digital. So you don't, it's not like they're in like a little folded up thing. Like, you know, when you get a gift card for Christmas or something and it's like in a little foldy thing and it's like, oh, a surprise, a gift card. Yep. That doesn't happen either. You just get a code and you get like, you know, like I get 7% back on DoorDash and 3% back on Uber uh, in sats, but I don't, I don't fold anything. Yep. It's got, it's got nothing to do with folding stuff. Just about sats. You just, lots of sats. So check them out. Go to guyswan.com slash fold. Link is in the show notes. Bitcoin Nodes and Methodological Individualism The Austrian school employs methodological individualism as one of its tools for discerning economic theory. While some schools of thought profess that a group can have a will of its own, the Austrians recognize that the group is itself made of individuals whose actions we can analyze. Ludwig von Mises writes, First, we must realize that all actions are performed by individuals. A collective operates always through the intermediary of one or several individuals whose actions are related to the collective as the secondary source. It is the meaning which the acting individuals and all those who are touched by their action attribute to an action that determines its character. It is the meaning that marks one action as the action of an individual and another action as the action of the state or of the municipality. The hangman, not the state, executes a criminal. It is the meaning of those concerned that discerns in the hangman's actions an action of the state. A group of armed men occupies a place. It is the meaning of those concerned which imputes this occupation not to the officers and soldiers on the spot, but to their nation. If we scrutinize the meaning of the various actions performed by individuals, we must necessarily learn everything about the actions of collective wholes. For a social collective has no existence and reality outside of the individual member's actions. The life of a collective is lived in the actions of the individuals constituting its body. There is no social collective conceivable which is not operative in the actions of some individuals. The reality of a social integer consists in its directing and releasing definite actions on the part of individuals. Thus, the way to a cognition of collective wholes is through an analysis of the individual's actions. And so it is with Bitcoin.
The Bitcoin network itself has no will of its own. It is a collection of Bitcoin users who operate individually on a shared set of network rules. Any individual is free to choose one set of rules or another, and the network itself is defined by the consensus about what those rules are. Any TCP/IP network between any two or more computers is an internet, but only one TCP/IP network is the internet. Likewise, any network of Bitcoin nodes is a Bitcoin network, but only one is the Bitcoin network. When an individual turns on a Bitcoin node, they express their will for what the rules of Bitcoin should be, instantiated with robust software that allows for no exceptions. They need not turn the node on for any reasons other than those of pure self-interest. The node is not meant to add security to the network in an altruistic sense, where an additional node adds to a particular security metric. Instead, they add to the network an expression of what defines a unit of Bitcoin its user will receive and spend. Users do not choose purely based on the rules they personally care about. A user may wish that the network parameters were slightly different, perhaps with a larger block size limit or a new transaction type. Instead, they choose how to instantiate their node based on what is most likely to allow them to engage in the most valuable economic trade. While a feature they desire might benefit them, and even if others might desire the feature if they had a better understanding of it, if the instantiation of that feature would prohibit a consensus with the network that gives them the most capacity for valuable economic trade, they may choose to accept such a trade-off. Security of the network then is based not on merely running a node, but on marketability, as described by Carl Menger. As more people choose to run or interface with nodes that have only a particular set of network rules, that network gains more capacity for economic trade. As the network gains more capacity for economic trade, more people will choose to run or interface with nodes that express those rules. This feedback loop continues to strengthen the rules that best serve people's market needs. This marketability is signaled through the economy via various prices. One example is the price of Bitcoin units. A more marketable network will be in more demand, so units on that particular network will cost more. Empirically, we see units from a UTXO on Bitcoin sell for orders of magnitude more than units even from the same UTXO on any of the other forks. Another example is the hash difficulty. Because units on the Bitcoin network are more valuable, miners are willing to expend more computational effort to try to earn a reward. Once again, empirically, we see the difficulty of Bitcoin is orders of magnitude greater than that of its forks. What emerges is, as Stop and Decrypt calls it, quote, an impenetrable fortress of validation. As more economic activity is defined by a rule set, the fewer transactions and blocks that conflict with these rules are even able to enter the network because they are rejected by nodes and not even relayed to other nodes. Out of the individual choices of first thousands and then millions of actors, a single Bitcoin network Bookkeeping with extreme prejudice emerges as the generally accepted medium and protocol of exchange. E pluribus unum.
Bitcoin is not optional. There is no Bitcoin network outside of Bitcoin nodes. Those who do not run their own full node are using someone else's full node. When a person uses someone else's full node, they are trusting that entity's claims about the full node. The only way to know you are interacting with Bitcoin the way you think is by running a full node. Holding private keys is enough to enable someone to have individual ownership. But only with a node can that user have certainty the coins actually exist. Only through a node interface do they know the addresses associated with their keys have received UTXOs. Specifically, only through a node interface do they know the addresses received UTXOs on the network they think. Keys depend on a full node to have knowledge of their relationship to the network. The capacity for saleability that Bitcoin provides is unmatched by any other monetary technology. There are no meaningful private keys in a fiat system, nor is there any meaningful auditing of the fiat network. Any actor who wishes to benefit from the assurances of Bitcoin must partake in the Bitcoin network if they wish to hedge against a particular set of uncertainties. Only by holding Bitcoin keys and running a Bitcoin full node can one operate with any real assurances of ownership, scarcity, and censorship resistance. This is true of a poor farmer in El Salvador, and it is true of the wealthiest people and institutions in the world, including the Federal Reserve. The Establishment of a Bitcoin World Order While it may seem at odds for a fiat-based state to have an interest in Bitcoin, applying methodological individualism reveals that the state itself is made of individuals rather than a large monolith. The individuals that make up the state still have their own monetary needs and interests. Even where Bitcoin might limit state power, the individuals may themselves benefit, making them less likely to be interested in attacking Bitcoin. States and superpowers themselves remain in a state of anarchy in relation to each other. They may still need to trade or stay competitive with other nations. Smaller nations that do not themselves have the power to print money may look to Bitcoin to gain a long-term advantage and independence, as seen in El Salvador. Anywhere that trade and savings may face uncertainties, a monetary asset is desired that can hedge against this. While states then may have an antagonism towards Bitcoin, we can also see there are ways in which they are not omnipotent and must navigate a changing economy and technological breakthroughs just like ourselves. If Bitcoin can indeed become a global reserve currency, the Federal Reserve needs their full node and cold card as much as a random, toxic Bitcoin pleb. This is not to say that all states everywhere from the feeblest to the most dominant will simply give in to Bitcoin tomorrow. It simply shows us that there is more at play in monetary competition than brute force alone. In discussing monetary competition, much has been written elsewhere about Bitcoin's economic potential to become a global reserve currency. But less has been said about Bitcoin's ideological growth potential. Bitcoin at its core solves three problems in a decentralized manner. Ownership through public key cryptography, double spending through proof-of-work timestamping, and issuance through proof-of-work difficulty adjustment. 
Because the system is built on extreme adversarial thinking, any successful attack is considered a fatal flaw to the Bitcoin system. These problems, in turn, are merely subsets of larger problems, state expropriation and counterfeiting. Each time Bitcoin strengthens its defenses against the petty versions of these problems, it has also built defenses against the most heinous versions of these problems. Any attacker, present or future, technical or ideological, is up against a system that has already built its defense mechanisms against it. Any successful attack that does not kill Bitcoin only serves to teach the rest of the network how to better defend against it and anything like it in the future. No amount of hash power can force an invalid block onto the network. So when Segwit2x proponents threaten to mine a hard fork chain, more Bitcoiners learn the importance of relying on their own node rather than someone else's. When exchanges have been hacked or lending platforms liquidated, more Bitcoiners learned the importance of holding their own keys. These were done out of prudent economic motives of having more certainty about their money. But in turn, it also bolsters defense against larger actors who wish to make the same attacks on a larger scale. Meanwhile, Bitcoin offers a uniquely capable and saleable monetary technology to alleviate uncertainties that have haunted man for centuries and further offer possibilities that might make it even more suitable for an increasingly internet-connected age. Additionally, due to being pure software, Bitcoin has become even more capable and promises to continue to do so. Any actor who is in need of money that works, which is any actor in a developed division of labor, needs Bitcoin. As adoption continues, more people place more reliance on the network, encouraging increased seriousness from every participant about the solution set offered through self-sovereign participation, as well as patching any potential vulnerabilities to future attacks. In the end, anyone who needs good money is drawn to Bitcoin, and anyone who is drawn to Bitcoin is drawn to defending Bitcoin. The economic growth and the will to secure and defend Bitcoin are intertwined, in a brilliant essay, The Will to be Free, The Role of Ideology in National Defense, Jeffrey Rogers Hummel considers the question of how a hypothetical future stateless society would provide defense against external attacks. By the very act of overthrowing the domestic government, whether peacefully or forcibly, the former subjects will have forged powerful tools for protecting themselves from foreign governments. The same social consensus, the same institutions, and the same ideological imperatives that had gained them liberation from their own state would be automatically in place to defend against any other states that tried to fill the vacuum. At each step of Bitcoin's growth, a new set of individuals have to measure up the uncertainties they deal with in the world and consider whether Bitcoin can solve their problems. Thus, even if at first they don't acquiesce. Everyone must begin discussing any change to the Bitcoin status quo of sovereignty requiring a full node and custody of private keys through the lens of Bitcoin or shitcoin. Bitcoin becomes a forcing function in pure economic discussions of what asset to choose for monetary purposes. Those who begin to choose Bitcoin for any reason, 
find themselves going down a path that by necessity strengthens their resolve to keep Bitcoin exactly how it is, which by its very nature is an implicit or explicit stance against any and all double spending and counterfeiting. Those who adopt Bitcoin see a dramatic long-term increase in the purchasing power of their savings. They increase certainty about the state and value of their money and their monetary network, access to their funds, and ability to liquidate. Each growth signals a success that serves to increase the credibility to others, and each order of magnitude growth sends an equal if not larger signal of capacity. Starting with a single user, this process has led to a global network with thousands of nodes, hundreds of billions of dollars in value, and entire nation-states onboarding. Over time, there is only one answer to Bitcoin or shitcoin. Having laid the groundwork to solve ownership, double-spending, and issuance at all attack levels, the Bitcoin network had to grow economically strong enough to encourage people to value it as money. And the very capacity for Bitcoin to withstand these attacks enough to become a global reserve currency must have required enough people holding keys and running full nodes to maintain such an order. A Bitcoin Strategy for World Peace Having created a new global reserve currency, built on a monetary technology superior in its saleability on all dimensions, humanity will have upgraded to a fundamentally better economic operating system. Gold's deficiencies will have been patched, and the ease and benefits of fiat will have been adopted without necessitating trusted third parties. The economy would grow at a faster rate thanks to a larger and more cooperative division of labor which in turn may even be compounded by further software innovations that strengthen Bitcoin's technological abilities. In such a future world, dependence on Bitcoin will necessarily grow, entrenching economic actors in a culture that does what is needed to ensure Bitcoin's security. With no more capacity for double spending and counterfeiting, the state's monopoly over money will cease to be, as no one will have demand for their services. Without their most profitable means of redistributing wealth, this will create more productivity in the economy by siphoning fewer resources away from productive ventures. This growth will be compounded by the fact that the same resources are not being redistributed towards people and institutions who use those resources to create ideological support for the redistribution itself. Military conquest will be diminished as the costs of war must be paid for more directly and monetary imperialism will have no purpose as no people will be willing to adopt a shitcoin. Those who previously had an inclination to fund their enterprises through counterfeiting and inflation will now have an alternative mechanism to guide their actions especially as the productive capacity of the economy increases at a faster rate, the increasing purchasing power of each Bitcoin unit means any would-be inflationist must now choose between holding Bitcoin and putting up a fight against a monetary system that cannot lose. Since Bitcoin's Genesis Block, 
humanity no longer needs to place its trust in third parties to manage as vital a tool as money. The people can now run their own nodes and hold their own keys, maintaining perpetual vigilance over their money and using it as they see fit. The Industrial Revolution freed humanity from the Malthusian trap. Bitcoin, having put an end to counterfeiting once and for all, frees us from the fiat trap. Michael Goldstein Whew. That was amazing. There is so much to unpack here, so let's take a minute and hit our sponsor, and then we will jump into a guy's take. Are you a corrupt, incompetent central bank that's worried about the health of your currency? Is this Bitcoin thing really stressing you out at night? And then you listen to Goldstein's breaking down the node world order. Got you spooked? No worries. The cold card Mark IV hardware wallet is here for you too. Maybe you're planning to print $6 trillion more trillion soon. Might not be a bad idea to get some Bitcoin beforehand and get it on your cold card. Your cold card will give your Bitcoin better than enterprise security, and you can air gap it from those competitor central banks that are trying to hack into your networks all the time. Don't worry, you've got a cold card. Your keys aren't on your computer. And maybe you want to add Bitcoin to your reserves, but your board and fellow employees are so corrupt and dishonest that you just can't trust anyone to have control over it. Well, luckily, CoinKite and the cold card makes multi-sig so easy. And you can pair it with tap signers, which is a super affordable and super secure way to protect your Bitcoin keys. And in the node world order, the central banks that didn't buy Bitcoin and protect it with their cold card are going to be sad central banks. Don't be a sad central bank. Be a Chad central bank. Get some Bitcoin and keep it safe with a cold card. So the next time you print $6 trillion, print a little bit more and buy yourself a cold card. And discount code Bitcoin Audible will get you 10% off until Christmas. You'll find a link and the discount code right there in the show notes. You are welcome. This one was so good. Um, uh, good to have Goldstein back in the writing saddle. And uh, I don't know if uh, Bitcoin Times and Alex Fetsky and crew um, just forced him to do this. <laughs> <laughs> or if he came to them. But uh, a great, really great piece that hits so many fundamental things. There's, uh, you know, Gigi had a recent piece on this one about kind of going towards the individualism route and trying to explain, because so many people miss that core idea that Bitcoin is a culmination of many actions of many individuals. That running a node is not something to support the network or run as a collective. It is a self-defense mechanism for yourself. And the more people, the more individuals who take that incentive and defend themselves from attackers on the network, the stronger Bitcoin is as a collective. And it is unbelievable how much shitcoiners cannot flip that around. They do not understand. All they seem to see is the collective argument. And they, they constantly go on this oh, it's you, you, you can Sybil attack nodes. And it's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. This has nothing to do with Sybil attacks. You cannot Sybil attack you. Nobody can Sybil attack your node. 
Your node can't be tricked into accepting an invalid block. And if all individuals take that action to defend and secure themselves and the rules that they know of as Bitcoin, then the Bitcoin network is secure. Not because of the collective, not because of some group of thousands of nodes that are com in combination um, uh, defending the Bitcoin with each other. They can't trust anyone else. One node can't trust a single other node on the network. What it does is trust its own validation on its computer. It is an individual. And through the actions of all of the individuals, the Bitcoin network emerges. And that cannot be Sybil attacked. Your node doesn't give the flying f if there are a hundred thousand other nodes that think Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. Your node doesn't care. Your node will ignore them. Your node will defend you against the idiocy of someone who thinks they can Sybil attack you into an invalid block or false transactions or a different set of rules. Now, if you're right, running a light client, if you're not validating everything, if you're just using somebody else's full node, then they can trick you. But that's not because you're Sybil attacked. That's because you're not checking anything. You're not doing any of the work. You have no idea what Bitcoin is. You're just trusting someone else to tell you what Bitcoin is. Man, if I had, if I had a nickel, if I had five sats for every single time that a shitcoiner or somebody from BSV or Bcash or whatever told me that my node doesn't make a difference and that it can be Sybil attacked and people can just spin up nodes and just cannot even begin like somehow and and as soon as i'm a bitcoiner they already already have these dumb just unbelievably dumb like narratives as to what the argument is and they can't possibly see outside of it because they're not even trying to listen anymore they're not trying to understand but it's hilarious that bch uh a b a bcash actually ran into this problem and suddenly they went on this tirade because they had a, a contentious fork one of their many many forks um, they ended up having a contentious one and they literally made a fork called Bitcoin nodes or something like that. I can't, I can't remember exactly what it was, but they were telling everybody to run a node and it's like, oh, but it can be civil attacked. What the f are you doing that for? But it's okay. Their philosophy and ignorance has led them to where they are. They could have learned the easy way and listened to Bitcoin audible, but instead they had to learn the hard way and lose all of their precious Bitcoin. It may already have happened, but it probably won't be long before they profoundly and deeply regret that decision. Now, there's, uh, there's a whole lot more. That, that is just something that triggered me because I, I tried to, I think Gigi did a really, really good job. I can't even remember what that, the, the piece was uh, right off the top of my head. If I, if I find it and or remember what it is, um, if anybody wants to remind me, I'll put it in tomorrow's show notes. Um, uh, and, uh, but uh, otherwise, I'll, I'll hunt through. I think it was something I did pretty recently. Um, and I'll have it in the description. So you might be able to look down in the description right now um, and actually see the episode. But maybe not. I don't know. You're in the future. I had nothing but uncertainties. The only thing I know is that Bitcoin will keep making blocks. <laughs> so, uh, so start this out. Um, it's so funny. You know, Austrian economics, it, he actually, where he starts this piece out, I think, actually has, um, is very much in line with the Proclaim Your Bitcoin series that we've been reading uh, recently from Simply Bitcoin. And the idea that the thief must, def must ideologically defend the system that enables their theft. And that the theft itself 
enables funding for the ideological defense. So it's a feedback mechanism to enable enable the ideological support for the redistribution that funds the ideological, the, the system itself that enables the redistribution. And that's how you get this economic idiocy of Keynesianism, which is crazy because Keynesianism is so fundamentally wrong if you build it from the very first building blocks. If you go back, if you, if you don't see the collective as something different than the sum of its parts, that it is, if you don't understand it as a collection of individuals making individual actions, then you can't possibly understand the reality because the, everything else is an abstraction. It's just a... a construct, a mental construct that we use to try to make sense of a group of people that we can't possibly see. You know, it's like a million. When we think of a million, we just think of a bunch of things. We don't see an individual, we don't see one million individual things. But that doesn't mean that those things aren't there. That doesn't mean that the million things itself is the thing. It's a collection of individual things. It is the inability, it is our lack of capacity to hold and understand something that complex and with that many interoper uh, uh, interrelational beings, individuals, and units within the system. Humans are terrible at, uh, at being able to visualize con- complex things. That's why we use base, si- stupid, simple abstractions to try to make sense of the world and why no matter what we do, we're always going to be aggressively ill-equipped to actually understand or actually see the truth of it. The best that we can do is come up with heuristics and use intuition. This is a lot like, uh, you know, this is kind of the basic nature, the, the idea of complex systems, of markets in general. It's why we can never actually know what the hell is happening in markets. And the fundamental truth that I was talking about that just obliterates all of Keynesianism Goldstein hits it right at the beginning. There's a quote, uh, this uh, little excerpt I got. It says, Only one way exists for such a stationary society to further increase real income per head or to grow in size without a loss in per capita income through technological innovation, i.e. by the employment of better, more efficient tools made possible through savings brought about by the abstention from leisure or other immediate consumption. He concludes that only through the process of lowering time preference so as to accumulate an increasing amount of capital goods and technology was it possible to break out of the Malthusian trap set by the limits of resources immediately available by kickstarting the Industrial Revolution. If there is any fundamental to economics absolute most basic obvious reality of life on earth as a human being that will utterly destroy the embarrassment the entire hierarchy of Keynesian economics wholesale it is this all innovation and progress comes solely and axiomatically from savings it is not up for discussion it is not a gray area it is necessarily true for the exact same reason you cannot eat a meal today with food you are going to go get tomorrow you cannot consume that which does not exist and the act of production and innovation is the act of consuming 
for the goal of increasing your ability to produce rather than immediately produce. It is about increasing your capacity for production by not producing, by, by, uh, by building your capital goods that will be your production tools later. When you design and build a fishing net, you are explicitly not fishing. You cannot catch fish by building a fishing net, but you may be able to catch 20 times as many fish after you have completed the net, which requires consumption, which requires taking your leisure time or taking your savings and applying it to the creation of a net. And that is because a fishing net is going to catch you a lot more fish a lot more quickly than your fishing pole. But the act of building the net involves the consumption of the twine that you have already harvested, eating the fish that you saved, that you caught with your pole, so that you could take the two days without going hungry while you make the net, and the many hours, you, probably while you were fishing with your pole, that you spent thinking of the design and concept of a net, realizing that it would grant you more food at much lower cost. But you don't know, because you don't have the net. It's just an idea in your head. So you had to take the risk, you had to take the savings, you had to harvest the twine, you had to consume all of the time and resources in order to innovate, to create this capital good for yourself so that you, 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 your family, your maybe even your entire community could free up more time and increase their savings in the future to enable everyone to solve their own problems in the same way. Because if now they all have the capacity to fish more, then they have more consumption and more ability, excuse me, they have more production and thus ability to save in order to do, to do their equivalent of a fishing net when they're building a hut or they're washing clothes or they're creating clothes and creating tools all of these things by having the fishing net and having a greater capacity to save fish so that you can take the time to consume savings to innovate on your capital goods, you can grow an economy. But that's it. That's it. That's the only mechanism available. There is no other. You can't say I'm going to have fish tomorrow so I'll eat it now. If you don't have savings, you can't do this on debt. You can't loan yourself your future to use resources today, you have to have the resources. And if you loan it to somebody else, you had to have it. The other person just got it from you. They didn't, the debt didn't just create the resources out of thin air. Somebody saved them. None of this can possibly work with only debt. Debt is nothing more than the exchange of savings. This literally, that, that one idea obliterates Keynesian economics. Our mainstream economics believes that you can start a project on debt. And it's because they treat the group as different from a collection of individuals. All you have to do is break it down, go all the way back to the individual, and you understand the economic principle. And it's no different with the group. The group is just taking it from someone else in the group. But the reality didn't change. It's not like resources just poofed out of thing, like the puff the magic dragon just came out and started making shit for everybody because, oh, we, we said we have debt and we're going to pay it back. Therefore, suddenly we have all the trees. Suddenly we have all the fish. No, the group is just a bunch of individuals. So can an individual build their house today without saved wood? If they haven't cut down the trees and made the boards to build the house, 
can they build the house yet? Can they issue themselves debt, which creates, which creates wood for them to go ahead and build the house, and then they can just go cut down the trees later over the next couple of months um, and, and live in the house while, while they you know, wait to pay back that debt? You could teach a three-year-old this. You could teach this to a three-year-old, but you can't teach it to a Harvard economics professor. Only with decades of propaganda can you make something, someone believe something that is so out of line with reality. And you have to make it convoluted. You have to fill it full of jargon. You have to make it so complex and you have to make so many models and things that they spend so much time learning and, and memorizing the fluff on top of it that they never, they essentially never have the time or the perspective to, to challenge the premise and then after they have invested in layer two, layer three, and layer four, and layer five of these ideas, and the, the broad ocean of supposed consequences, and all these specific models, and specific markets, and all of these equations that uh, are built off of the Keynesian economic pr uh, premise, after they've made all this, all this investment, they're not going to go back and then challenge their premise. Oh my God, like, can you imagine? It's like... It's like investing your entire life in a skill set that you just found out doesn't even do what you thought it did. If there is any way that you can keep going and not realize that, it is detrimental to your self-worth and your, your identity and your self-esteem to not figure out that everything that you did was completely worthless and had nothing to do with reality. There's a... There's another section in, in talking, going back to the idea of like the feedback loop of the, the institutions and the individuals that profit from the systems and ideology of theft must embrace and then uh, expand. They must defend the ideology that enables their way of life, that enables their power and influence over the world because they don't want they obviously don't want to lose that power and influence. And as a state, the legitimacy is based on public ideology, on public support that the lack of public resistance to the state's authority, it is a superstition. It is a superstition, a, a belief that authority can override morals and that it is legitimate for them to do so. That even though I am not allowed to murder my neighbor, if the state comes in and murders someone acting for the state, an individual acting for the state comes in and murders my neighbor, well, then now I'm asking what my neighbor did. The state is built, is founded upon an ideology of an exception to the moral rule. And then their ability to, dom uh, to dominate the currency, to dominate the money, allows them to confiscate economic resources, to confiscate all of the capital in the service of spreading, defending, and strengthening that ideology. This is why every state always takes over the money and takes over the education. It is not altruism. It is about power. There's another great excerpt from this. It says, Public ideology in support of this fiat currency system then comes from two angles. First, the fact that the underlying technology is, in many ways, an improvement in creating a more saleable money, despite the fact that its otherwise free market potential is now co-opted and monopolized by the state. 
Second, the state can use this as an advantage by crediting themselves as the source of the economic benefits we see from its effects, while papering over the costs of counterfeiting on the economy. Given banks are naturally one of the most powerful institutions in an economy due to their vital role in facilitating economic activity, they provide yet more legitimacy and resources to the establishment of a public ideology that defends the state's unjust role in the monetary order that allows it to continue. Thus, it is not surprising that few educated people can be expected to have even heard the name Ludwig von Mises during their studies. This is also, this is also why censorship is ultimately a tool of the government. It is always a tool of the state because they cannot let ideas spread. They cannot let ideology spread that undermines the system of theft that allows them to allows them to grow and prosper that allow that keeps their power hierarchy in line but i tell you what there is a great quote it's literally right at the beginning um this is the first thing that i saved um uh and it's from the theory of money and credit and i don't i don't remember this from the book but it's the book is huge and dense but it says perpetual vigilance on the part of the citizens can achieve what a thousand laws and dozens of alphabetical bureaus with hordes of employees never have and never will achieve the preservation of a sound currency. Ludwig von Mises. Such a great quote. And I think I think it's also it's dumbly profound in the mechanism by which Bitcoin protects itself by which the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoiner, a Bitcoiner individual, defends themselves and defines their, their fortress of validation within the system. Another great excerpt from this. A Bitcoin full node is a certainty machine. When a user runs a full node, they are granted a level of certainty about a monetary network that no human had prior to Bitcoin's existence. Every other monetary technology is riddled with uncertainties. Bitcoin fixes this. That is such a great way to frame the value of Bitcoin and why, in the face of a 60%, 70%, 80% drop, there is so much certainty in the future value of Bitcoin. Because it's not the price we use to judge the value of Bitcoin. It's the degree of certainties that Bitcoin entails and the recognition that in spite of common ignorance about it, certainty will always be desirable and that there is no degree of certainty in any monetary technology that can even closely compare to that with which you get in Bitcoin. Meaning that all I have to do to be convinced to buy more Bitcoin at $16,000 after I bought a bunch at $60,000 is to realize that certainty is still valuable and Bitcoin remains a certainty machine. Bitcoin continues to do what Bitcoin has always done. And it's just not a slightly difficult bet for me to say in the future people will value certainty, especially in a world that has become horrifically uncertain that has become uncertain in uh, economic uh, production, 
has un- uh, become uncertain in whether or not you have the rights to walk around outside at a particular time of day, that has become uncertain as to whether or not you have your money in the morning, that has become uncertain whether or not your political institutions even care about your opinion or your well-being, that has become uncertain as to whether or not what you think and say will have your freedom taken away from you or your ability to interact or your ability ability to trade or your ability to go somewhere. You've seen all the protests that are happening in China right now that are happening in the CCP against the lockdowns and the continued uh, COVID passports and stuff everywhere. Everybody who was out in the protests have just automatically gotten a COVID red card. They just get like a COVID red check or whatever. They can't get back into their apartment complexes. They cannot go home. They, the only thing that you're allowed to do if you have a red mark is two, two weeks worth of uh, isolation, of uh, uh, quarantine, which is a gaslighty way of saying you have to go to prison because you did something that the state doesn't want you to do. That's the end game of the fiat system. That's the end game of a fully digital money with a fully centralized owner. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like a great future. That doesn't seem like a happy place that I want to go to in 10 years' time. That doesn't seem like the world that I want my kid growing up in. And it is their systems and their money which enables exactly that kind of authoritarianism. And our nations, the Western nations, want the exact same thing. Klaus Schwab has just, in the last couple of days, held it up, held China up as a great example of what we should be doing. And Bitcoin, and running a full node, and self-hosting our own data, and building our own infrastructure to protect Bitcoin, and to protect our ability to communicate, to encrypt our communications, to exit from their infrastructure, to exit from their banking system, to exit from their payment rails, will allow us to opt out of that dystopic shit. Quote, An excerpt from this piece, with no more capacity for double spending and counterfeiting, the state's monopoly over money will cease to be, as no one will have demand for their services. Without their most profitable means of redistributing wealth, this will create more productivity in the economy by siphoning fewer resources away from productive ventures. This growth will be compounded by the fact that the same resources are not being redistributed towards people and institutions who use those resources to create ideological support for the redistribution itself. The undermining of their ability to counterfeit, the the separation of money and state, is not just a death blow to the economic capacity of the state to exist. It is not just a gutting of the state's capacity to use violence against its population rather than provide it with a useful service. It is also a death blow to the ideology that supports it because it only thrives on censorship and propaganda. While the incentives of Bitcoin and the incentives of information itself, the seed phrase of a Bitcoin key, becoming the actual value has us rethinking our communication systems, how we connect, how much and how often we encrypt, how we think about what filters are telling us and and, uh, enabling them to change the information that we have access to and the values that we care about and and that we get exposed to on the internet. 
It has put more pressure on redesigning and, and re-understanding our place on the internet and our control over our information and our connections and our money than ever before, and it is reinforcing that. It is making it stronger at the exact same time it is making the other weaker. If you're not running a full node, you should think about it. If you're not self-hosting, if you haven't taken the dive and looked into some of these software, uh, this software and, and looked into Keat, looked into the Embassy Pro, looked into Synonym and Slash Tags and uh, you know, My Umbral uh, or uh, uh, Get Umbral, My Node BTC, a C, uh, a core lightning, LND, like whatever it is. If there is any way that you want to dip your toes in the water, it's time. I think it's time to take the step and use one of the tools. And you don't have to go hard. You don't have to. You don't have to go barreling into you know the hardest, most difficult thing, and you know use a multi a four of five multi sig setup or anything like that. Do the first simplest thing that you can think of. Spend five minutes. And just play around with something. Receive a payment over lightning. Start to learn, the, learn and start to use, explore the tools that are going to give you the ability to opt out. Because if you don't, you can't, th that is the way to opt out. You have to go to the place of freedom in order to get freedom. And that place is online. That place is in the internet. And that place is a collection of tools and software that you use. And it does not work without the collective actions of the individuals taking command of those things, taking the responsibility of learning how to manage your 24 words or your 12-word seed phrase. I know it's unfamiliar. I know, it's, I know it can seem difficult, but that is what freedom is. It is responsibility. It is taking charge of your crap. If you want it, you have to go take it. I do not want to go to a new world order. I want to go toward a node world order. And I hope you take that opportunity and you take that responsibility and you do too. And you know, this is why I have the sponsors that I do, that I, the, the companies that I work with and I reach out to. I feel like these are the companies and the tools. Like, I mean, I have obviously a lot of other tools and things that I use in Bitcoin, but they're they're specifically to get you toward that. Like these are the services that help fill those gaps. You know, the cold card and having a, just having a solid Bitcoin hardware wallet and putting your savings on it is like 90% of the battle. There's actually an excerpt in this. Um, I love that he actually talks about, he actually says that the Federal Reserve will have to have their cold card too. That a poor farmer in the middle of nowhere in the third world country they have their cold card, they have their hardware wallet, and they hold their keys. But it's the exact same reality for the largest, most powerful monetary institution on the planet. It is no different. They either hold their keys or they don't own Bitcoin. The, the excerpt, though, it says, Holding private keys is enough to enable someone to have individual ownership, but only with a node can that user have certainty that the coins actually exist. Only through a node interface do they know the addresses associated with their keys have received UTXOs. Specifically, UTXOs are just spent Bitcoin, Bitcoin that were sent to you. That should be obvious, but just in case. Specifically, only through a node interface do they know the addresses received UTXOs on the network that they think 
That is what the node does. It proves that you're in consensus with the Bitcoin rather than a Bitcoin. Quote, keys depend on a full node to have knowledge of their relationship to the network. The keys are your ownership of Bitcoin. The node tells you which Bitcoin you own on which Bitcoin network. And no amount of hash power can lie to you about that truth. Anyway, um, I'm already working on a couple other pieces and Alan Farrington just dropped uh, Green Eggs and Ham, uh, which is like 24 pages. So I'll be doing that. I'm going to just plow through this week. I'm going to try to get a ton of audio done. So uh, uh, get ready and we will close this one out here. I want to say thank you again to uh, CoinKite and the Cold Card, to Swan Bitcoin and their amazing resource and the automatic savings plan that I've just been using since forever. Um, Swan has just been an awesome, awesome company in the space. Um, and of course for Fold, I uh, did a couple of spins a day. I think I got like 60 or 70,000 sats today just on like normal stuff. For your fiat life, use Fold and get sats back on all of your stuff. Links in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Hey, Rad. Hey, buddy. I hope you enjoyed our read today. Goldstein's Toward a Node World Order. Rad is very happy about this. He just, he just loved this piece. <laughs> he is bouncing up and down about it. Um, and uh, I will catch you on the next one. I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode of Bitcoin Audible. Until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. It is well enough that the people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Henry Ford This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.